Welcome to Dig Beneath Design, a podcast where design professionals share how they communicate their work. I'm Sanaya Norton, landscape architect, and after 20 years of practice, I've seen how communication can make or break a project, no matter how great the idea. So I'm going out into the industry to uncover the best design communication strategies and tips to help us be more effective, more articulate designers and get more great ideas off the ground. Indira Naidu is an expert communicator. You might have seen her on television, heard her on radio, or read her books The Edible Balcony and its sequel The Edible City. From a spelling bee that nearly spelled the end of her TV career to a real-life bee that's become a symbol of hope for climate resilience, Indira knows how to tell a story. She reveals her top tips from 30 years in the communications industry, how to grab people's attention in an era of fake news, why never to watch yourself on film, what she really wants to hear from designers, and how to deal with sexism in the workplace. My first view of Indira in real life is from a distance, hurrying down a King's Cross laneway, late and apologetic, but the minute she's briefed and mic'd up, Indira is formidable. Warm, on point, with story after entertaining story emerging in fully formed sentences, seemingly without the need to draw breath. And before I know it, I'm laughing, I'm crying, I'm completely hooked. Let's get down to the good dirt on Dig Beneath Design. My name's Indira Naidu, and I describe myself as what they call a slasher. Uh, I'm part journalist, part radio broadcaster, television host, writer. Uh, chef, gardener, (laughs) but generally I would say everything connected in a a communication vein. And what are you currently working on? So at the moment I'm hosting the 2CH breakfast radio show from 6 till 9 o'clock with Trevor Sinclair. I'm also hosting a third series of the Homeless series that we've done for SBS for the past three years. And I'm about to start a cooking show with Kylie Kwong for Channel 7, where we follow the pathways of immigrant and refugee families and their food stories. So the reason I wanted to interview you on this show, Indira, is because I've grown up with you on my television and I've always loved how you seem to be able to communicate with people in what seems like a really authentic way. You make it look easy. (laughs) <laughs> to be yourself and to be warm and engaging, whether it's radio or television or in front of a group of people. The first thing I want to know is, is it easy for you? Has it always been? I guess as a young child growing up, I was always one of those kids where my parents would say, Indira, stop talking. Indira, be quiet. Indira, don't make comments about that. That's very rude. So I think naturally I had the inclination uh, to want to share opinions and my ideas and my thoughts and to talk and meet people. We moved around a lot as a family, which meant that I think I became very good at those skills of how to adapt to new people and new situations. So I'm always the one going out of my way to go, hi, how are you? Did you just move into the building? Can I show you where the toilet is when we're at school? Things like that. So I've always naturally, and then I think through circumstance, developed those skills. So it wasn't probably a big jump then that I ended up going into journalism and and communications as a profession, even though it wasn't really the the thing that I was planning to do at all. It wasn't something that I thought, this is going to be my dream career or job or I've got the skill set. It wasn't like that, but now I look back, I always had the skills, but just wasn't aware where it it would take me. So yes, I think a lot of it is quite natural. What was your first experience of 
being in some kind of media? The very first thing I did was as a nine-year-old, I was on the local television station's spelling bee and it was broadcast just to our local area in a little country town in Tasmania where we were living at the time. And that was going into a studio and having the very famous news presenter being the quiz master and asking me questions. And I bombed out a little bit. I think I spelt thigh wrong. Instead of T-H-I-G-H, I spelled T-H-Y or something. And humiliated and thought that's the end of my television career and stuff. But that was the first thing when I was nine years old. And I, I remember at the time just sweating and just feeling that, that horrible, slick, oily sweat thing that you get and thinking, oh, that's a really uncomfortable experience. So yeah, it, yeah, it wasn't probably the best way to be introduced to television. And did you watch yourself back afterwards? I did. And what was so funny too is the cameras weren't used to dark-skinned people to be in the studio, so I was really black and blown out, and the back of the studio is all white, so I, was, I could only see my teeth, basically, in this little tiny black little girl sitting in the chair <laughs> and sweating and not being able to answer the questions, Poor so it's terrible. Thing. What about after that? So from nine, then through school, did you do any things that helped grow those skills? Well, I was always involved in uh, acting, the school plays, public speaking, yeah, drama, uh, and even on our sports teams, I tended to be the, the captain of the swim team, netball team. So I, I guess, yes, I got used to doing performance and leading a group and uh, representing a group on behalf of them to someone else. So yes, school then, uh, even though it didn't involve television again, uh, did have a lot of those performance elements. Indira studied journalism at uni and went straight to work presenting the news. I asked her what key advice she'd give to designers wanting to build their communication skills. The first news bulletin I presented, I was 21, so I'm 51 now, so it's been 30 years. It's a very, very long time. So a lot of it is experience, which doesn't help people who are trying to get there really quickly. But I want to get experience in 21 hours. How do I do it? It can be more a case that I would say, in terms of all sorts of communicating, is the first thing is to be authentic, to be the version of yourself that is authentic. And there are lots of different types of communicators out there and people who are just so different. Like there's almost nothing like Steve Irwin that I am like, but we are both communicators and we just do it in a different way. And uh, he was obviously one of the, the, the greatest, you know, globally one of the greatest communicators around. But if he'd gone through university with me, my lecturers would have said, you're never going to amount to anything, no one's ever going to hire you and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, I look back on the different people I've seen over my career as well, who were authentic presenters, but they were trying to fit one style of a presenter they saw or a newsreader or a, you know, a performer or an actor and lost the, the real who they were. And people around them would try to make them be something different. And I think that that's an important thing to reiterate to people is, of course, there are some basic communication skills that every communicator needs. But I think in the end, it's about, yeah, communicating the essence of who you are. That's the important thing. So when you look back at some of the early news broadcasts you did, how do you feel when you see that younger self? Uncomfortable and just embarrassed. Oh, do you? Yeah. Why is that? Yeah. Uh, look, I, I have to admit, like a lot of people who do communication broadcasting, a lot of actors, I've, I've got acting friends of mine, uh, like David Wenham, for instance, we talk about this. He has never seen one of his films. Oh, well, he never watches them. No. And most people are like that. I rarely will go back and watch any one of my performances either. While you're in it and performing, you just want to be 
in it rather than thinking about it in a posterity sort of way. What do you mean? So some people uh, will perform and think I'm watching myself perform. Oh. I'm listening to myself and how I sound As while I'm doing, doing it. it. And, and I think you're doing that because you're thinking about the after rather than being present. So it is a challenge is to forget the after and how it's going to seem and how you're coming across and just be authentically connected to that person you're talking to or that audience or, or that crowd. And then for me, once that's happened, it's gone. It sort of happens. And if you go back and look back on it, this is just me, I think I'm looking at something that's gone. So it's in a different time and space to where I am now. So I'm just going to be assess it in a different way and probably harshly as well because that wasn't... That was me and this is another time, another me. It's a weird thing. So I rarely look back at my work as, as well. So, yeah, but a, a lot of communicators will, will say that, that it is uncomfortable for them to sort of, because it's like splitting yourself in two and being the performer and then being the, the one that's reviewing at the same time. That's so fascinating the way you describe that. I, I feel myself doing that. Ah. Yeah, I, I wish I was more present. When yeah, and less self-conscious. And less self-conscious, yeah. less thinking about how's this coming across and how's that person there reacting to me right now? Yeah. Ah. So then how do you grow? So if you don't analyse how you're tracking or how you've performed in, in say, this area <clears throat> of communication, how do you learn and grow? Obviously, there is an aspect of review and, and revision and assessment that you do. There is an aspect of that. So while... So for instance, a commercial radio that I'm hosting at the moment, three hours a day, that's the first time I've done that. A very different style of communication to what I've done before. And I'm very conscious of how hopeless I am in most aspects of that because I don't, I'm not used to the timing, the sort of working with just one person and bouncing off, going into ad breaks, coming back out, keeping the, the energy, the level of the music song that we're going to play. And there's so many things to think about all the time, as well as your little piece and it being tight and interesting and smart and funny or, or whatever. So there's a lot going on. So the, the first five or six months of doing it, it was just like, oh, I, oh. and now... I'm much more aware of the timing of it, the content, the tone. I don't even have to listen back to it to know that as I'm saying it, I can pick the pace, you know, just from an experience point of view of doing it. But, you know, one of the things you can be conscious of is how did that idea come across? Did it get a bit garbled? Did I lose my train of thought and at the end thinking, okay, how am I going to get myself out of this thought? Like I started <laughs> it and now I don't know how to went all that. And there are those sorts of things that you do from experience get better at. So you think about what's the in, what's the out, and what's going to be the middle hook. Oh, tell me. And you think about yeah. that before you even start it. So you, you, you know, for instance, we might have had a story about um, baby, baby names for the little baby Sussex that's about to be born, Megan and Harry's little girl or boy. And, the, you know, so that's the hook. That's what we're getting you to think about. And then we'll talk about all the, the, the polls and betting agencies are predicting Diana for a girl, Arthur for a boy. Um, the royal names, funnily enough, since 1066, there have been 380 monarchs, but there have only been 13 names they've just recycled. So everyone's really ended up being a Victoria or Albert, which is, again, really hilarious. So that's the middle bit. And then how do you get out? What's the end? And the end is, you know, because well, my host's name is Trevor, and I said, unfortunately for you, Trevor, you know, 
Princess Trevor is not on their list of names. <laughs> and then bang, and then we're out. So you've thought about the in, the middle, and the out, and you know the duration of it, and, and then it happens sort of thing. I love that. Uh, so that's structured for structure. a one-minute piece, uh, but then you structure again for a, you know 10 minutes or half an hour or one hour. So it's really important in your head or when you write down your main points or how you're going to present that piece of information that you keep those sorts of structures that help guide you and in the end, as our general manager will always say to us when she reviews our work, and in the end, keep it brief. Like, even if you've been given 10 minutes for the talk and you think, oh, that's not much time, I need half an hour, most of the time your key messages can get across in five minutes, actually. And it's much better for your audience if you get in and get out quickly and keep them, keep it keen and keep it tight. We've all been in those situations listening to someone go on for 10, 20, half an hour, one hour. You know, there's nothing worse than that. So it's, a, it's about knowing the key ideas you want to communicate and just briefly just punch them out there. Don't stay longer than you need to. I have a question about communicating an idea. You were a climate change ambassador with Al Gore for a, a number of years, mm -hmm. and now it's um, food production in cities. In those, both of those cases, how do you get something you're passionate about across to a broad audience? The good thing about my background in, in journalism and the training was, again, every day, 10 or 11 stories, we had to communicate to a broad audience. So that it tends to help to think about key ideas and words and things that grab people, you know. That are more universal. That's right, yeah. So in journalism, you're taught about the who, what, when and why, you know, and they're really great grabs. Also, as things are changing, so the way different people are accessing information now, you've got to understand the different platforms that they are looking at. So people are now not just listening to the evening news, they're looking at Instagram, they've got you know Facebook um, sites. So you've got to look at your message to be tailored to different platforms. And that's what's different now than when I guess I started in the communication business. So for instance, uh, climate change communication. That used to be just about the scientists, this is the evidence, this is the peer-reviewed you know, piece of information. Uh, the media would report that as factual and expertise and then that would go to the audience. Now, in our environment, the expertise of scientists is, is constantly being debunked and you know, ridiculed and it's very difficult to get a sense of what everyone accepts is the, the fundamental truth or fact you know, of a situation. So that you've always got to look at different ways to tell a piece of information. So Al Gore, for instance, when we were doing climate change uh, issues, just to say scientists and every senior scientist in the world had said something, that wasn't enough anymore. You had to find uh, people who were peer groups of the peer of the groups you were going to to get them to join in the message so just because someone says they were david attenborough people go so but he's an eminent scientist so he's been broadcasting on this for 50 years so uh, but if you found their gym instructor that also thought climate change was a problem they'd go yeah right he's a cool guy like i know him and i see him every week so uh, I'd, I'd listen to what he'd have to say to me so it's very strange 
the different people now that people are looking to for information. So when you're running campaigns and getting information across, I'm constantly looking for whoever people are listening to, even if you don't think they have much credibility in that space, but if they are also sympathetic and, and have similar views, use them as part of your campaign because they can access another group as well. So for instance, when it came to climate change, there's a lot of inner city people in Sydney at the time who were looking to green their spaces, uh, connect more with their food and healthier ways of eating, grow some of their own food. It was another aspect to the story about climate change and the effects it was going to have on food production. But if you talked about climate, they wouldn't get it so much. But if you talked about, you know, you can grow this tomato and then have this fresh fruit that's going to be delicious and good for you and nutritious and whatever, and it was something you can connect with and grow community, they get that part of the story. So then you use that to tell the story and don't make it about climate change, even though essentially it's all sitting under a climate change umbrella. So it's, for me, it's constantly finding the most effective way to reach the group of people that need to hear that information. Something that's tactile and someone can visualise and imagine tasting that, that tomato. Which is always a challenge with climate change because it just seems like climate is everywhere, it's all encompassing. But if you can bring it down to something very real and very meaningful to someone's life, it always makes a difference. So I saw a, a recording of a talk you did to a large audience. How do you prep for something like that? Uh, again, it depends what the context or the content mm. is going to be. If it's going to be one of my presentations about food and climate and gardening, which tends to be a format that I do quite regularly. So I'm very comfortable with the material. I don't even need a script in front of me. I know all the slides, I know how it's gonna roll. I because can, you've done it how many times? Probably 4,000. So yeah, I've been touring with my first book, which came out in 2011, nationally and internationally since then. So that's eight years. Uh, and last year of radio, I would have done about five or six presentations a week in that year, which is ridiculous. Wow. So yes, that, that particular presentation I knew quite well and the subject matter. So my question there is, when you are really familiar with the content, exactly. It tends to be the audience. So I, I use my audience to keep it as fresh as possible. So if my audience is going to be young kids at a school, that in itself is going to be fun. You know, then I'm going to go to my worm bin and bring a little jar of worms or something. And so when I'm playing and talking a story, I can hang some worms around. And I mean, I do that to the adults as well and they love it. <laughs> uh, so little things that are also keeping it fresh for me. So I tell my story, you know, a bit differently. Everyone usually loves it anyway, though, even if it's the same thing I, I tell. Uh, the story of the first bee that came onto my balcony. People love that and, I, and I'm, when it first started to happen, I, I would say to them, why is that story connecting with everyone so much? They love that story. And then now I understand what it is, is because it's this thing that everyone has a little bit of a fear about, the bees are gonna sting them, and they don't really understand that, you know, they don't have a relationship with bees, especially in our urban settings. And this story was all about growing food on my balcony and having to attract bees and being allergic to bees myself and being quite badly stung as a child. So it just seems counterintuitive. Oh my gosh, now you want to bring these things to your balcony? And then when you decide that, how do you do it? You know, and I planted a specific flower, a borage flower with these purple flowers that are very sweet and, and the nectar bees love to attract them, you know, to my trap of my balcony and waiting there for the bee, you know, to come, which again is just what humans and nature we're so disconnected from to do. 
and waiting and waiting and there's no bee and it can't happen. I'm on a balcony on the 13th floor. How's a bee gonna know that I've got these flowers here and I've got, I've got to get these zucchinis pollinated. What am I gonna do? And then suddenly I see this little, you know, hovering shadowy figure and go, oh my God, that can't be a bee. And then I'm so mesmerized that I forget that fear, which is also a really important part of the story. I just go close to the bee and I'm with my camera and watching it and it's hovering and I'm willing it to go to the flower and of course it does. And I look at the little bits of pollen sticking to the back of its legs and I've never been that close to a bee to even notice that before because I've always been so terrified it's gonna sting me. And then I see it hover and then move to my zucchinis and I'm going, yes, it's pollinating my babies. And, and I'm just so caught in this world of this bee and these flowers that I just forget all those other fears. And then within a few weeks, all my zucchini flowers were pollinated by that little bee and she would come every morning sunrise and sunset and I just developed this amazing connection I mean I thought it was the same bee it probably wasn't it was probably a couple of bees uh, but this connection uh, and I how much I needed her this thing that I'd been so terrified of uh, and, and how connected and you know special she became in my life as well and again it became a, a story about our broader disconnection from nature and and how much we need these insects and pollinators in our life and our, and our food system but we don't think about it because we just rush to the supermarket and get things off polystyrene trays so people love that story and now I know because you know bees are actually more important in the scheme of the way the planet operates than we are but we never think of it that way until you put yourself into that sort of experiment and you realize yeah they're, they're extraordinary creatures and there isn't anything to be fearful of so those sorts of stories when you talk about worms and how they create the soil and you talk about bees and um yeah yeah humanizing you know nature in a way and in an urban setting where most of us live now uh, has helped me tell those stories many, many times, just different versions of the story, but those key elements tend to you know, sort of remain no matter what my audience is. Yeah, I remembered something I wanted to ask you. It's about, it's going back to maybe some of your journalism days, interview days, and it's about power. I'm interested in power play sometimes with body language or how people are in a group setting. A friend of mine described a meeting he had just the other day where he was meeting with a man and a woman. And when the woman asked this man a question, the man would direct his answer to my male friend. He wouldn't make eye contact with the woman who'd asked him a question. Have you experienced mm. behaviour like that? Mm -hmm. What have you experienced and what do you do? So my radio station at the moment, I'm the only female presenter. They're all men and they're all older men as well. So men in their 70s, 60s and 70s. It's a very unusual age skewing in, in my network. And these men come from a generation and an era where they've actually never been used to women presenters on radio ever. That, that was just not a thing that they grew up with. So even though it's happening more and more, it's not happening on our network and it's not been their past experience. So it's quite an unusual thing. So it can be quite challenging and I, I've noticed a couple of conversations that we'll have or chats uh, with other co-hosts who are getting used to me, don't have to work with every day. They feel really uncomfortable so they'll, I'll ask them a question or whatever and then they'll talk to the other man in the room rather than me who asked the question. So they will, they'll do exactly oh, yeah, they that. Will. They'll do exactly that. And I find it really funny because I'm thinking, well, how do I address this without actually saying to them, so why are you looking at the bloke and not me who asked you the question? 
So I'm now realizing I might have to sort of say, hey, over here, yeah, me, right, remember? Because I'm not quite sure what, what that is about, actually. But I am finding that as a phenomenon. And I think it's just because there just hasn't been a history of women in those spaces. How you deal with it is it's, it's a time thing. And I'm going to have to be a little bit more ballsy. Like when I ask a question, I'm going to actually have to block the other bloke <laughs> in the room's view. So I jump across. Hey, hello. <laughs> so they, I don't think they're even aware that they do it. Any other examples where you, you know that it has been deliberate? There have been a couple of times when I was a on-the-road reporter and, and interviewing some sport jocks and sport coaches where they really were being sexist. You know, women weren't allowed to go into the um, players' rooms and the male reporter who was normally doing this round couldn't get there and I was coming back from a story and so he said, can you just go down and pick up this interview with the coach? And I remember going down there, everyone just staring and going, there's a woman in the players' room, oh God, who do you think you are? And you know, there was a little bit of um, animosity there. And then the coach was terrible and he, he sort of looked at me and rather than say, introduce himself, int allow me to introduce me, he just said, oh, where's, where's Aston, who normally does the interview? And I said, oh look, he couldn't make it. So I'm stepping in for him and he goes, oh right, yeah, right. What do you know about sport? You know, that, that was the first thing he said. And this coach hosted a radio show um, at the time, and he was a very high profile radio commentator, but hopeless, you know, he didn't have any skills. He was only doing it because he was a coach. So I was a little bit, probably a little bit naughty. And I just said, when he said, what do you know about you know, football? And I said, well, as much as you know about journalism. Yeah. And High five. I know, yeah. but I couldn't even believe I'd said it because this man was very revered and I was just a kid and everything. But I just remember at the time thinking, well, if you're going to pull it, I'm going to pull it back. But uh, yeah, we developed a great professional relationship after that. But I think it was because I just took it on straight away and called it rather than letting it, you know, um, intimidate me. Do you think a lot about the language that you use? Uh, I do. I tend to find... There's, again, different languages depending on audiences, but my colloquial speaking language tends to not have lots of very big words. And I think that that probably started from when I first started in television and the audiences I was talking to were university or kids or lots of young people. And so it tended to be the style of words and language that you would communicate to your friends at that age. But I think I've kept a lot of that as I've got older too. So I find that when my friends who are in their 50s talk or they talk to their children, they, they don't usually use the same sort of words I use. So <laughs> I don't know if I've just stayed in that era. Uh, so yeah, so most of my language tends to be very, very simple, very chatty. You know, there's, there's words that are sort of fun and lighter rather than anything that's too descriptive or scientific or, or yeah. long worded. Have you had experience uh, communicating with designers, say an architect with a renovation or... Yeah. Okay, have you noticed anything about the language that they use that is complex? I tend to find that when I'm dealing with, with lots of designers or people in the arts world, yeah. there are ways that they talk, which I find very poetic and very lyrical, actually, the best designers. Not necessarily the, the technical parts of it, but painting pictures and, and images and ideas and can be very lyrical and, and so it can be lovely in one way 
to communicate like that. But then in other ways, it can be a bit frustrating because what do you actually mean? Yeah. Like, what are, what are the concrete ideas in that discussion of that, that wall, you know, <laughs> that you just described to me? <laughs> but, you know, are you talking about bricks? Is that what that, that whole thing was about? Is that what you mean, a brick? So sometimes I do find, even though I enjoy the overall way that that brick was described, the brick was never quite mentioned in a way that I understood it to be a brick. So you kind of want both. I want both. Yeah. Give me the, the lovely yeah. magical lyricism, but tell me that was a brick, right? Yeah. I think the thing that was wonderful about Steve Irwin, again, as a great communicator, is he took you into a world that most of us weren't part of and was able to make it sound so magical and the connection that he, he had with these creatures so extraordinary that you wanted to understand his language and understand that world. So you didn't only want it to be framed in your language and your understanding as well, I think, which was quite lovely. So I don't think it necessarily has to be that everything from your world has to be translated into this person's world, but you have to make that world sound so magical and wonderful and interesting and amazing that people are going to want to take that journey and understand what a stingray's life is and how it poos, you know, sort of thing, by the way that you pick the parts of that story that are going to really make people go, wow, yeah. you know, and, and then, which is better for your, your design world anyway, because then they understand more about your world rather than you constantly having to put it in, in their terms all the time as well. So if the idea is really interesting, I think the communication will, will happen following it. So find the exciting, interesting ideas that you get passionate about. And if you, you're passionate about them, you can carry that communication and make other people passionate and interested about it as well. So I think great communication is ideas driven. Yeah, great. Yeah. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks so much. You've been listening to a podcast of Dig Beneath Design, here to help you in your daily design communication challenges. So I'd love to hear from you, what you think of the show, what you want to know, Tell me the design communicators that inspire you. Or maybe there's a great story from your own experience that can help your fellow designers. Find more interviews at sndc.com.au forward slash Dig Beneath Design. Dig Beneath Design is brought to you by SNDC. Original music by Adam Jones. Sound and photography by James Norton. Engineered and mastered at Sound Kitchen Sydney. I'm Sunaya Norton. Join me next time for more good dirt on Dig Beneath Design.